welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Sarah Ward and I'm an integrated cardiothoracic resident here at the University of Michigan. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Stephen Bowling on the topic of degenerative mitral valve disease. Uh, our discussion will focus on the preoperative workup, uh, intraoperative strategies, and post-op management of these patients. Uh, Dr. Bowling is a professor of cardiac surgery here at the University of Michigan and is a nationally recognized expert in mitral valve disease. Dr. Bowling, thank you so much for joining me today in this discussion. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Okay. I wanted to begin with a short case scenario. Uh, you have a 65-year-old woman who's otherwise healthy uh, presenting to your clinic with a six-month history of shortness of breath, and she's been referred to you by her cardiologist due to a recent diagnosis of mitral regurgitation. Uh, what are some of the key elements in the history and physical that you include when you're evaluating a patient with mitral regurgitation? Well, thanks, Sarah. I think the uh, history is uh, quite important for these patients. Many mitral uh, regurgitation patients, the degenerative patients, are really generally healthy. Uh, but you have to see, do they have any other comorbidities? Um, do they have coronary disease? And, of course, uh, you have to find out, do they have symptoms of the mitral regurgitation and do they have heart failure? So I think the history and physical take uh, a very important part. Um, let's say that this patient uh, does not have any significant comorbidities, um, but she tells you that she does become short of breath with moderate activity, and she can no longer perform her normal exercise routine. Um, you have her echo sent by the cardiologist. What are the things that you look for when you're reviewing uh, the echo to determine the severity of mitral regurgitation? And also, um, what is the role of other imaging, such as uh, TEE, a CT scan, or a cardiac cath when you're working up these patients? Well, Sarah, really in the uh, area of uh, mitral valve disease, it's pretty much an echo world. If they have some comorbid uh, conditions, such as, uh, you know, atherosclerotic heart disease, they'll need a catheterization and a CT and so on like that. But basically, we're looking for the echo criteria. We uh, know that the guidelines tell us uh, that we should move to consider patients for an operation if they have symptoms. And, you know, we think, are they symptomatic? And if they're not, then we have to think of other things if they're asymptomatic to go ahead. But the first criteria is really, do they have significant mitral regurgitation? Remember, for us as surgeons, it's really a binary concept. We want a yes or no answer. Do we move to the operating room? And although it's, it's often mild to moderate or moderate to severe or severe, we as surgeons really want a black or white answer. Is it answer? Is the answer, is this significant? And therefore, we think of things like regurgitant volume greater than 60 cc's or regurgitant fraction of greater 40 cc's in an effective regurgitant orifice area of 0.4. Those are probably the major things, but we use sort of an integrative approach when I look at an echo. Does this patient have significant mitral regurgitation, yes or no? And once you make that diagnosis of MR, how important is it uh, for you to distinguish the uh, etiology? Well, I think it's very important to distinguish the etiology. We think of uh, mitral regurgitation either as primary mitral regurgitation or secondary. 
This is either organic or intrinsic disease of the valve and the leaflets, or it's functional and of the ventricle. And they're very different pathologies, and the outcomes are very different, and even the surgical approach is very different. So I think it's very important on the echo to decide, is this functional disease of the ventricle causing the mitral regurgitation, or is it leaflet disease, degenerative disease, causing the regurgitation? We often try to lump these mitral regurgitation patients together, but they're really very different diseases. That would be like putting all cancer patients together. For example, putting skin cancer and pancreatic cancer patients together, they're really not, even though the word cancer appears in both of them. So for mitral regurgitation patients, we have to be very careful and really separate the functional patients from the degenerative patients because their approach surgically and their outcomes are sort of very different. And of course, we have to say, also identify that small minority of patients either have endocarditis or rheumatic disease or some other thing going on. Uh, for this patient, uh, let's say that her echo shows an EF of 55%. Uh, she has uh, P2 prolapse and 4-plus mitral regurgitation. Uh, would you then recommend operative intervention, and could you also comment on uh, the concept of repair versus replacement? Well, you know, we say to ourselves, if a patient is symptomatic, and this woman does sound like she's symptomatic in your history and physical you brought forward that she had had a change in her exercise tolerance and I'm assuming that this patient really doesn't have JVD or demon or other physical signs of later on heart failure but she is symptomatic then we would recommend an intervention especially in this patient who has degenerative disease and can be expected to have a very uh, good repair so if they're not symptomatic and they also have significant mitral regurgitation, then we have to look at the guidelines. What are the other things that would move us to a repair? And those four things, including uh, a drop in LV function below an ejection fraction of 60, pulmonary hypertension greater than 50, end systolic diameter greater than 40 millimeters, or atrial fibrillation. And the way to remember those are really 60, 50, 40, and AFib. And if you think of it, if a patient has severe MR, their baseline ejection fraction should be much higher, and a drop down to 60 portends an injury to the myocardium where the myocardium is not tolerating this. Pulmonary pressures, you know, of course, are normally very low, and a pulmonary pressure greater than 50 is really a late sign, and even though that patient is quote-unquote asymptomatic, should move to the operating room. And systolic and systolic diameter should be about the size of somebody's thumb and forefingers, or maybe 2.5 or 2.8 millimeters in diameter. And if the ventricle is unable to crunch down, if you will, to 4 centimeters, something has happened to them. And of course, if a patient has atrial fibrillation, really that's, uh, you know, in my mind, although the patient may be asymptomatic, that's really a symptom and left atrium has become dilated, their left atrial pressure has raised, and is brought on atrial fibrillation. All of those things make us want to move forward to the operating room with a quote-unquote asymptomatic patient if, as the guidelines say, we really expect to have at least a 95% repair rate with a less than 1% mortality. 
Now some people in the bigger programs would say we really should expect a 99% repair rate in these patients, uh, but the guidelines say 95%, but either way we should expect that these patients get a repair. Uh, in taking this patient to the OR for a mitral valve repair, what is your uh, operative approach? And could you comment on um, your thoughts about the role of an intraoperative uh, echo as well? Well, before I do that, let me just comment on the outcome that we expect for these patients in degenerative disease versus the ischemic patients. Those patients with functional mitral regurgitation as you know, there is really incomplete data on those patients. The most recent New England Journal publications um, are very good papers, and they show us that there's really very little outcome difference between replacement and repair in those functional patients. That's very different than in the degenerative patients where basically if you get a good long-lasting repair, you cure those patients, you put them on their life, time long survival curve as if they did not have the disease. For ischemic patients or functional patients, which make up the vast majority of functional patients that we see, their outcome is, you know, probably determined not just by their mitral regurgitation but by their underlying ventricular disease and their other comorbid conditions including carotid disease, kidney disease, and so on and so forth. However, the data from the New England Journal trials and from the latest trial, the Italian trial that has just appeared in Jack, clearly in those patients a good repair is better than replacement. However, it is problematic how we can predict a good repair in those patients. And of course, a bad repair, the recurrence rate in the New England Journal was up to 50% at two years, really doesn't help the patient's outcome at all. But I think in terms of outcomes, we have to think about the difference again between functional or secondary MR and primary degenerative MR. Again, that helps us think about the patients. We make that determination on TEE. When you ask the question of intraoperative TEE, obviously this is incredibly important. At the time of operation, you should have already made the decision to uh, do the mitral valve. Obviously, under anesthesia, the patients can have changes in their loading, afterload, preload, and so on, and it varies, especially in functional disease, the outcome. But it does tell you anatomy. So oftentimes, when we go to the operating room, we use the T and we say, turn the color off. So at that time, we look at things that we could anticipate at the time of surgery. What is our surgical strategy? Do we have a ruptured posterior uh, cord? Do we have a ruptured anterior cord? Uh, is there significant anterior uh, annular dilatation and so forth? It helps with our strategy. The other thing is, at the time of surgery or beforehand, TE certainly helps us to think about is there concomitant tricuspid regurgitation or even if we get stuck making that decision in the operating room, is there a dilated tricuspid annulus in both the American and the European guidelines? Basically say that if you're there doing left-sided heart surgery, i.e. on the mitral valve, you should highly consider tricuspid repair, certainly if it's severe you must do it, moderate or less, or even if there's just annular dilatation of four centimeters or more. So these are really um, very important things that the TE tells us but not by color. 
we should basically turn the color off by the time we get to the operating room because we've already made the decision to fix and repair the mitral valve. Uh, can you also discuss the relevant anatomy during your dissection and different exposure uh, strategies that you use? Well, obviously, there's a lot of anatomy around the mitral valve that you have to think of. The AV node can be injured, the aortic leaflets, the aortic mitral curtain. Obviously, when you're doing a mitral valve replacement and you're putting the stitches perpendicular to the, to the mitral valve, you can um, injure the aortic uh, leaflets. You uh, should think about where the coronary arteries are. Or is it a right or a left dominant circulation? The circumflex artery certainly has been reported to be injured at the time of surgery and where the coronary sinus is. So all these are relatively important anatomic structures. In terms of the exposure strategies, my um, approach has been if I'm only doing a mitral valve, I will open up Sondergaard's groove and I will really dissect the right atrium far off the left atrium and then directly enter the left atrium. And this obviously uh, gives us uh, a good look at the mitral valve. I tend to think that the three most important things about doing mitral valve surgery are number one exposure, number two exposure, number three exposure. It's sort of like real estate. If I've already decided to do a tricuspid valve, I'll probably open the right atrium and then expose the mitral valve transeptally via the right atrium. But of course, you can do that through two separate atriotomies. It's sort of dealer's choice. Uh, can you also comment on sizing of the annuloplasty ring and also what types of rings you would use and when? I think annuloplasty ring, surgeons get really whipped into a frenzy about annuloplasty rings. I think annuloplasty rings for secondary or functional mitral regurgitation, really if you're going to take those patients on, you probably should use a complete, rigid, downsized ring. And I think that's really all the groups in the who do that type of surgery have come to that conclusion. For a degenerative patient, I think it's a little bit dealer's choice. What you're trying to do is support the repair that you've done and also um, to uh, reestablish the size of the annulus. And I think uh, for my theory has been for most of the patients who have um, smaller ventricles, and we tend to see patients before they become quite symptomatic in large ventricles, I'll use a partial flexible ring. But in degenerative disease, the larger the ventricle it is, again, I'm going to go more to a complete, more rigid ring. But in this patient who you described today, I think probably I'd use a partial flexible ring. Um, and also in repairing the leaflets in general, what's your approach for a posterior leaflet repair versus um, somebody who has anterior bileaflet pathology? I think uh, I'll answer that question backwards. Most people, when they think of the anterior leaflet today, we use Gore-Tex, and I think that's really uniformly how we use, um, uh, how we look at repairing the anterior leaflet. We do very little uh, anterior leaflet resection. For the posterior leaflet, uh, I think it's almost dealer's choice. Uh, you can either resect some of it. I have to admit that I have uh, gone to less resections than I used to. And I think a very small triangular resection or even just imbricating the posterior leaflet is very effective. Many people use Gore-Tex on the posterior leaflet, and I think that's fine too. I think, again, our goal is to reestablish the zone of coaptation under the plane of the anus. And whether you get that with resection 
or Gore-Tex doesn't matter as long as you reestablish the normal way that the mitral valve closes, which is to have an interventricular long zone of coaptation. And that zone should be reestablished to be somewhere around 8, 9, 10 millimeters. Not in this patient, but in a functional patient, we would like to have that zone of coaptation be very long. And I think one thing that we do in our functional patients is we, we measure that zone of coaptation. In the degenerative patient, I don't think it has to be that long, but again, we'd like to have a normal length of coaptation. What are some of the operative pitfalls uh, we should be aware of? For example, um, let's say coming off uh, or after you're done with your repair, the patient has significant uh, systolic anterior uh, motion. Uh, what, what would you do in that type of situation? Well, you know, having had a lot of experience, we don't see SAM very much because we think about SAM. Obviously, SAM is mostly related to the biology of the patient, and we should be aware of SAM in a patient who's smaller, who has a very uh, well-functioning ventricle or hypertension with a small cavity. We should think of SAM, and if the patient has very long leaflets, both anterior and posterior bileaflet prolapse, then you should think, am I a candidate for getting SAM? And again, most of the time when we come off and there is SAM, it's because the patient is biologically deranged, if you will. They're underfilled, they're hyperdynamic, they're hypercontractile, they're tachycardic, and most of those can be just treated medically. However, if you do the treatment, the three top reasons why you as a surgeon has got SAM is one, you left the posterior leaflet too tall, Secondly, you left the posterior leaflet too tall. And lastly, you left the darn posterior leaflet too tall. And it's usually a surgical mistake that you've left too much posterior leaflet and you've pushed the anterior leaflet forward because of that into the outflow tract. So when we're looking at the posterior leaflet when we're doing the repair, I like to take a pair of debakies and just rim it around there. A relaxed debakies is about a centimeter. You don't want to leave too much more than that posteriorly. There's a lot of techniques we can use to undermine the posterior leaflet. Uh, you know, a sliding plasty on both the right and left sides to pull the leaflet back. But basically, it's because the height, if you will, uh, if the posterior leaflet is too high. Now, if I'm coming off bypass and I've set up the biology correctly, I've changed the physiology and I still have SAM, you should go back on and re-repair. If you truly felt that was a repairable valve foul first, it is still a repairable valve. We will often, if we have to, take the ring off and redo the posterior leaflet, but many times I use a trick of just taking stitches into the posterior leaflet, putting them under the ring and pulling them out behind the ring and just yanking the posterior leaflet backwards. But I have to admit, you know, we're very aware of that and we understand the anatomy and physiology of SAM. And although I describe many surgeons of having SAM fever, I think we just don't see it that much anymore. Uh, what are some other operative pitfalls that you um, have seen, and how should we avoid them? Well, I mean, some of the things that we fear as surgeons, of course, our biggest fear is AV dissociation or blowing a hole in the AV groove out the back of the heart. And that is really in patients who have MAC, mitral annular calcification. And we have to be very aware of those. 
We used to be quite aggressive about debriding hearts of calcium, and I think I've become less aggressive over time, really placing repair almost just slightly behind the calcium and almost just shoving the entire posterior apparatus forward. If you think of it, you get most of your AP diameter constriction by the stitches on the side in the annulus, if you will, and we can just shove the whole block, including the posterior leaflet, forward. So. I think you have to be aware of it, and it's more common when you replace a valve because then you're forced to put stitches through the calcium. And the other thing we see is if you come off bypass and you see, you know, regional wall motion abnormalities and or ST changes on the inferior lateral wall, think about, you know, have you injured or compromised a coronary, and it's almost never that you've completely tied off a coronary but somehow you've buckled or pinched it with one of your stitches and think about that if you see that's there. A patient has good function and has normal coronary should not come off that sluggish or with ST changes. Um, once the surgery is uh, complete, what's the typical post-operative uh, course that you would expect for this patient in the hospital? So a patient like the one you described today, a routine degenerative mitral valve repair with normal function, normal coronaries, and minor symptoms, we would expect that patient to be in the hospital about three and a half days. They would be expected to be extubated the day of surgery, out of bed that evening, and up and walking around. They do relatively well. About 25% of them may have some small bouts of uh, atrial fibrillation. We do not prophylactically treat our patients with amiodarone, but that's what we use if they do have post-op AFib occurrence. And then we really uh, get them to the step-down unit and home relatively aggressively. These are the patients who really only have one disease uh, process going on, and they've fixed them, and they have to just recover from the uh, operation itself. We uh, start anticoagulation on our patients. Again, this is very variable among surgeons and you will get more controversy about what to do with the post-operative mitral valve repair in terms of anticoagulation, I think because there is zero data related to it. But our practice has been to uh, use Coumadin because I think there probably is a little bit of data showing that their relative rate of TIA and neurologic events is higher if you don't. We do it for about four to six weeks in the post-operative period, and we run it at Coumadin light, if you will, around an INR of 2 to 2.5. And uh, after discharge, how would you then follow this patient um, long-term, and what to you are the indicators of a successful uh, mitral valve repair? Well, obviously, when we come off bypass, we look at the TEE. And we really now are looking for zero mitral regurgitation because remember that patient is still under anesthesia. And a rough guideline is whatever you see under anesthesia is going to double as soon as the patient wakes up. I don't know that that's exactly true, but if they have one plus, they'll have two plus. If they have two plus, they're going to have four plus. And if they have zero plus, that's going to double and they'll still have zero plus. So honestly, we come off with zero plus regurgitation, And I think it's not only behooves us to have a 99% successful repair rate, but that repair has to have a very low recurrence rate. And we quote patients about a half percent in the first year, and then about 0.1% per year or half of that 
per year over the rest of their life. So obviously if you do a young person, they may have a higher recurrence rate, but I think that's a reasonable standard of trying to hold yourself to. So that's what we would consider a successful repair. Not just coming off with no mitral regurgitation, but they really are put back onto their normal course. We usually see the patients back uh, around 30 days postoperatively. At that point in time, if they're in sinus still, we basically stop uh, their Coumadin. I like to keep the patients on diuretics and beta blockers for about 180 days. We ask the cardiologist to stop them somewhere around the six-month mark. And then I usually have the patients stay on a baby aspirin uh, forever. Well, um, that's uh, all the time we have for today. I just wanted to thank you again uh, so much for your um, sharing with us your expertise in this subject, and I'm sure uh, many of the residents will find this very helpful. Thank you. Sarah, thank you very much.